Thanks, Alex. Good morning, everyone. How are you? Good. Well, it's good to see you guys here this morning. Um, as Alex said, we are continuing on in our new series called Brave New World. And again, the idea of this series is that um, our culture has painted a narrative of what human flourishing looks like in these various areas of life. Things like technology and sex and family and money, etc. And yet oftentimes, that narrative or that worldview is in direct opposition to the scriptures and to what God says human flourishing looks like. And so uh, last week we, we jumped in and the first area or topic we looked at was this area of technology. And we, we talked about the fact that things have been changing rapidly in our culture in this area. Um, and, and really the source of that rapid change in the last decade has been the rise of the smartphone and, and social media and that, that both of those things have led to us spending more and more time um, looking at and interacting with screens. And uh, what we saw last week is that there's been a lot of effects because of that, not only uh, on us as human beings, but particularly for us as followers of Jesus. And so um, if you missed last week, I would encourage you to you know, catch up on our podcast, or you can watch the video on our website, because I think this is a really important topic we need to be talking about. It's not going away anytime soon, and, uh, and it's something I think, again, as believers, we need to be thinking about and thinking about what it looks like for us to follow Jesus um, in this day and age that we find ourselves in. And so uh, that's where we were last week. Uh, we're going to shift this week and look at a new topic, and we're going to be looking at this area of brave new sexuality. And so in light of that, let me just give a little disclaimer. Um, today's topic is definitely a little more sensitive in nature. And so uh, parents, if you have kids in here, I just wanted to uh, give you a heads up on that. Um, I, I mean, I'm not, gonna, I'm not planning on anyway being vulgar or sexually explicit with my language. But um, again, the, it's a pretty difficult topic. And we'll be looking at some concepts and ideas that are going on in culture. And so again, I just wanted to, to give you that heads up. Um, and so before we dive into this, let me take a deep breath, and uh, let me pray and invite the Holy Spirit to, to be a part of our time here. Father, we so need your wisdom and your discernment in this area of our life, Lord. Let's pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd come. We welcome you. We invite you. I ask that you'd come and that you would just illuminate our minds, Lord. Jesus, you promised that the Spirit would come and lead us into all truth. And so I just pray that this morning you would uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know. Uh, to know you, to know your truth. And I just pray that we could all be pointed to Jesus today. That we'd see him more beautiful than we did before we came in. We'd be more in love with him. And we ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you were here with us last week, you'll know that uh, I, I talked about uh, a little bit, the genesis of this series came about as a result of me reading the 20th century uh, novel, Brave New World, and that, that what happened was, is as I was reading it about a year ago, um, I, I began feeling like, wow, we are totally uh, living this culture right now. We, we have become the brave new world, and, and I think that that is uh, certainly true when it comes to this area of sex and sexuality. Um, if you've read that weird little book, you'll know that um, in that society, uh, th they have some pretty bizarre views of these things, and yet, as I've watched our culture in the last few years or so, we are definitely moving in that direction. 
And so in light of that, today, I, I, what I want to try to do is to just answer these four basic questions uh, in this area. And the, the four questions are this. Number one, what does our culture say about sex and sexuality? And in other words, what is the narrative? What is the worldview? Um, number two, I want to look at and say, uh, what does God through the scriptures say about sex and sexuality? Uh, so there, what's the biblical or the Christian narrative? And then number three, I want to ask the question, which of these lead to human flourishing? And so as we evaluate these two uh, different narratives, which one leads to human flourishing? And then finally, I just want to ask the question, as Christians, how do we respond then? What does it look like for us to, to engage and to live uh, out our Christian faith? And so starting with this first question here, what does culture say about sex and sexuality? Um, again, a, sort of a little disclaimer here, just... Uh, just so you know, I am going to be generalizing. And so I recognize that some of the things I'm going to say are not true of every Christian in our society. And so uh, please understand that. But at the same time, I think when you factor in uh, statistics and things like pop culture and other indicators like that, I think that it is fair to generalize and even stereotype our culture's view of these things to some extent. And so that, again, as we look at this first question, I'm just going to be laying out their views without really commenting on them. Because again, my goal here is to just simply state what it is that our culture believes around these things. And so in light of that, what, what is culture saying right now? Well, first off, I think it's fair to acknowledge that in this area, there's been a, a, a quite a bit of a change in recent years, and so um, some of the things that I might share today may seem shocking or hard to believe, but, but uh, again, I think that's, that's what our culture is, is promoting. And so uh, the, the first thing I want to say about this is that uh, I think by and large, the overarching message when it comes to sex in our culture is that it's just physical. In other words, when you think about the narrative that's being told, it's, it's just that, well, you know, sex is just this physical act between consenting people. And so because of that, it's not that big of a deal. It's just about pleasure. It's about release. You know, it's part of our animal instinct. It's just this thing that needs to be expressed. And so, you know, don't get hung up on feelings or emotions because, again, at the end of the day, it's just physical. And so that's why when it comes to things uh, with teens and young people, we see things like hookup culture. Um, we see things like pornography be being very prevalent. And uh, if you don't know what I mean by hookup culture, it's just simply this idea of having sex with whoever, whenever. And this is really illustrated in apps like Tinder. Um, if you don't know what Tinder is, uh, basically from what I can tell, it's this app that, that uh, you log on to and it locates your position. And it begins to show you pictures of other people within your location who are also looking for someone to meet up with. Now, they advertise it as a way to meet new people or as a dating app or whatever, but in reality, it's pretty much acknowledged that it's mainly used to hook up with or to have sex with someone you don't know. And so, again, the way that it works is it shows you a picture of someone within your range of location, and if you think that they look interesting or you're interested, you swipe right, which lets them know that. Um, if you're not interested, you swipe left, and, and you just get a, you get a new picture, and so if you swipe right on their picture and they swipe right on your picture, then they match you up and that allows you to begin to start talking with each other and to begin to make plans to meet up. Again, I, I realize that for some of you this is like, really, is this, what is this, like five people using this thing? Well, no, actually they estimate on average 10 million people a day use this app. 
And over 100 million people have downloaded it. And so literally thousands, if not millions of people, are doing this on a regular basis. And they're hooking up and they're having sex with total strangers. There's no dating. There's no commitment. It's just sex because, again, sex, it's just physical. And then you move on to someone else. And so Tinder is one aspect of of this uh, thing called hookup culture. I think it also looks a lot like just young people at a party where alcohol and drugs are involved. And, and so, again, you're not maybe thinking clearly. And you look around at the end of the night and you think, um, well, you know, she looks nice or he looks nice. And, hey, I know we don't really know each other, but, hey, well, let's, let's go for this. And, and the thing about it is that there, not only is this accepted or tolerated, but there is actually pressure and expectations on teens and young people to participate in it. I mean, believe it or not, this, this really has become, in our world, the new normal. And so hookup culture uh, definitely is part of our culture's worldview when it comes to sex. Um, another aspect, I, I think, is what some have referred to as porn culture. Now, this is pretty much what it sounds like, and that is an uncritical acceptance of porn and porn use into people's lives. In other words, the, the shame and the embarrassment that used to be associated with porn, um, it's no longer there. And I think that that's been growing uh, to be true of both for men and women, especially younger people. You see, in their world, uh, to not look at porn makes you weird and to makes you questionable. We see this portrayed in movies and in TV shows. Uh, It's being encouraged um, as something that couples can do together. And so again, it's just this wide acceptance as this as the new normal, and this has also led into other things, uh, things like sexting, where people are taking pictures of themselves with their phones and sending them to each other. And uh, the thing about it is, is that it's really not just teens and young people. I think both of these cultures have crept into older uh, people's way of thinking as well. For example, uh, for example, adultery and, and infidelity, it doesn't quite carry the same shame that it used to. Um, There's even websites that are created to encourage it, things like AshleyMadison.com, which, uh, you know, if you was really in the news a few years ago when it got hacked. Um, As well, I think even with adults, the the idea of watching porn and the shame there or the the stigma, it's it's not nearly there in the way that it used to be. Um, There's things like Fifty Shades of Grey that, that have become just part of our pop culture, and it was highly consumed by older adults, both the books and the movies. And so, again, this is just a sampling of things that I could point to, but, but I will leave it there. Um, and so that's a little bit about our culture's view of sex. So what about sexuality? Well, I think one of the biggest factors when, when thinking about this and how the current culture thinks is that it, they have tied their sexuality so much into their identity. You see, for them, sexuality is about self-expression. It's about finding the real you. It's about looking inside and finding out who you really are, which is why when you critique their sexuality or say that it's wrong, that you become a target for some real hostility and aggression. And, and again, this is because their sexuality is a, it's so core to who they are as a person. And so because of that, there's been a dramatic acceptance in recent years of embracing the values and the practices of uh, the LGBT plus community, both by younger and older generations. 
statistically, though, it's, it's, it's being shown that it's much more embraced by younger generations. Not only do they not question the ideas and the practices of the LGBT community, but many of them are choosing to experiment and identify in that way as well. For example, according to, to one uh, study I saw by YouGov.com, only about two-thirds of people under the age of 30 report to being completely heterosexual or even completely homosexual. So in other words, what that's saying there is that one-third of people under the age of 30 report being somewhere in the category of bisexual. And what that means is that they're viewing their sexuality as fluid. Sort of depends on the moment or the day or, or, or the relationship or just a matter of who I fall in love with. There's a, an openness to falling in love and, and even being sexually involved with, with anyone. Um, I have a friend of mine who uh, volunteers with PDHC, and she's confirmed that this is, she's seeing this in, in, in real life experience. Um, PDHC, when they're uh, working with someone and helping them out, they'll have them fill out a, a sexual history survey. And as part of that, they ask them, um, in regards to their sexual history, are you having sex with someone of the opposite sex, same sex, or both? And uh, again, what she has reported back to me is that there, uh, she didn't have the exact PDHC statistics, but there's been a dramatic increase in people marking the box for both. And so again, I realize that for some of us, this may be shocking. You may be thinking that perhaps I'm exaggerating, but, but I promise you that I'm not. You can just talk to some millennials or to some Gen Z uh, folks, or for that matter, just turn on your TV or uh, listen to WNCI or whatever, and you'll see that what I'm saying is true. And so that's the, the first question. How does our culture view these things? Let's, let's move on now, though, and, and look at a second question, and that is this. What does God, through the scriptures, say about sex and sexuality? Well, to answer that one, I think we need to open up our Bibles, and, and, and if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I don't know what page that's on, but I'm assuming it's within the first couple, so um, if you're new to the Bible, just, just open up at the beginning. All right, so Genesis chapter 1 and 2, this is the creation narrative, and uh, what we see as we read the creation narrative is we see that God is the creator and that we as humans are his creation. And when we go through chapter 1, we see that God, uh, he created the heavens and the earth. He created the sea and the dry land. He created the sun and the moon, the trees and the plants. He created the birds and the animals. And then he looked back on the creation and he said that it was good. He declared that it was good. And then uh, he goes to day 6. And so picking it up in verse 26, we read this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then skip down to verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. And so chapter 1, it's, it's, it's kind of a 10,000-foot view of creation. 
But then we come to chapter 2, and it begins to, to zoom in and give us some more details into that day 6 when God created man. And so actually, um, just flip over a page and let's read from chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a, hel- a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, And they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And so right here at the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of creation, we see quite a few things in relation to the Christian narrative of of sex and sexuality. And the first thing that we see is that that we were created and designed by God. and, And specifically, unlike the rest of creation, we were created in his image. And so that right there tells us that humanity is unique and different from the rest of creation, including the animal world. And not only that, we see that God created here two different and distinct genders. There's male and there's female, and both of them together reflect the image and the likeness of God. And so what that means is that our identity is not in our sexuality like culture says, but rather our identity is in the fact that we are made in the image of God. And so because uh, the biblical narrative ties our identity um, not with sex but in the image of God, what that means is that you can be single your whole life and never have sex and still be fully human. You see, you can still have your identity intact and, and, and not have uh, sex as part of your life. You can live a life like Jesus or, or like the Apostle Paul, and your life can be amazing. It can be, you can still live a full life. And yet if you contrast that with culture's view, that sounds ludicrous. And that's because of how much they have made sex into an idol. Now the other thing that we see in this passage is that the very first command that God ever gives humanity is this, have sex. Maybe you didn't catch it, but verse 28 of chapter 1 says this, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, God said, Adam and Eve, get busy. Have sex, please. And not only that, but that we see that God finds this to be very good. As he created the other things through the first five days, he said it's good. God looked at, uh, you know, the sun and the moon, the universe, all these amazing things. He's like, yeah, it's good. But then he creates men and women and tells them to have sex. And he says, you know what? That's very good. I'm really proud of what I did there. And so what that teaches us, I think, is a couple things. Number one, it teaches us that that sex is God's idea. It was his invention. And I think that's really important that we understand that because what that means is that he has the right and the wisdom to direct its use. And that's because he has designed it to work in a certain way. 
And so again, number one, sex is his idea. But the second thing it teaches us is that sex is really, really good. In fact, it's so good that it's the first commandment ever given in the Bible. And I think that's also important for us to realize because I think as a church, as, as Christians in the world, maybe we haven't always been clear on that point. You see, I think for too many years, the, the only message the church has ever communicated about sex is a list of don'ts. Don't have sex before you get married. Don't look at porn. Don't cheat on your spouse. And those things are true, and they, they need to be communicated. But those things only communicate the negative side of sex without communicating the positive side, which, if you look at the Bible, it doesn't start with the negative, but it starts with the positive affirmation of this good gift. And I think it's good for us to remember that, to realize that. You see, because as a pastor, I've, I've noticed it's really hard on, on someone who's grown up in the church to be told all of their growing up years that sex is bad, that it's wrong, that it's sinful, that it's dirty or whatever. And then all of a sudden have them get married and say to make that jump and all of a sudden, hey, now it's good, now it's great, jump in, go for it. It, it, it can bring some confusion and that can be a hard transition for some. Don't misunderstand me. Yes, there are prohibitions in this area of sex. I'm not saying that they're not. I'm just wondering if perhaps we've approached the subject in the wrong way. You see, I just think as Christians, we have to be super clear on this point. Sex is good. It's God's idea. And according to him, he uh, wants you to enjoy it, but he wants you to enjoy it in the right context that is according to his design and intention. And so that's my, my first point. Sex is really really good. Um, the second thing I would point out is uh, from this passage is that it's really, really powerful. We read earlier in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 this, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now that Hebrew uh, word there for one is the word akkad, which, which means what it says. It means one. But the thing that's interesting is, is that in the Shema, which, which for Jewish people is, is one of the most important passages in the Bible, it's found in Deuteronomy 6, in, that, uh, in the, what they call the Shema, in verse 4, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Akkad there is, is describing God as one. Now we know from Jesus in the New Testament that God is a triune God, meaning three distinct persons in one God. And so the reason that's important uh, when it comes to understanding sex is this, this idea of becoming one flesh, it's referring to, to becoming more than just one physically. In other words, in, in God's saying that the two shall become one flesh, he's not referring to the fact of just simply how your body parts fit together. And we'll leave it at that. Um, but rather, what he is saying is that in that process, in that moment, not only is there a, a physical oneness, but, but you are being fused together at your deepest levels. It's why uh, Matt Chandler has referred to this as the mingling of souls. You see, according to the Christian narrative, the biblical narrative, sex is not just a physical act. It's, it's much more than that. It's not less than physical, but it is more. Sex bonds and it unites two people both physically and emotionally at their deepest levels. And that's why it's so powerful. That's why there's even a degree of danger to it. Um, John Mark Comer, one of the books I looked at this week was called Loveology. And uh, here, here's one of the things that he wrote. He said, something powerful happens in sex. 
two humans become a cod. They know each other. And this action cannot be undone. It's irreversible. And to God, the only relationship strong enough to hold that kind of untamed, fierce power is marriage. That is the only container that can handle the nuclear force we call sex. The world says sex is just biological, just the momentary coupling of two bodies for sexual release. But God says sex is so much more. It's two separate, autonomous human beings being fused into one. It's the meddling of two bodies and two souls. It's physical and it's spiritual because there's no way to bifurcate the two. That's why there is no such thing as casual sex because sex involves all of you. So the scriptures, I think, teach us here in the beginning that sex is good, but it also teaches us that it's powerful. And it also teaches us, as Comer points out, that sex was designed to function within marriage. You see, again, if you read Genesis 2.24, God not only invented sex, but he also invented marriage, and therefore he has the right to define it too. And the way that God all throughout the scriptures has defined marriage is between one man and one woman. And so because of that, that too informs Christians' belief uh, belief about this area of sex and sexuality. Now, one other thing that's really important to the Christian worldview in all of this um, is the fact that that when all is said and done, the first two chapters where all of this is described, that this happens before the fall. And what that means is that we were sexual before we were sinful. But unfortunately, if you keep reading past chapter 2 in Genesis, you find out that we become sinful. And that's because in chapter 3, humanity falls. Humanity chooses to reject God, and therefore, that opens the door for God's good creation to be messed up. And so because of that, God's intention and design for sex gets messed up, and therefore, God later on in the scriptures has to give us some clarifying commands around this good gift. For example, in the Ten Commandments, he has to tell us to not have sex with someone who's not our spouse. As well, he has to tell us to not have sex with people of the same gender. He has to tell us to not have sex before we get married. And actually, by the time you get to the New Testament, you you get this idea of sexual immorality being warned and commanded against. And and the Greek word in the New Testament used for that is the Greek word porneia. And and that's where we get our word pornography. And and the word porneia has been pointed out. It's It's a little bit of a junk drawer term to refer to anything, to any and all forms of sex and sexuality outside of marriage between a man and a woman. And so all that to say, when sin came into the world, it distorted and attacked God's plan and purpose for sex. And so because of that, God has had to remind us all throughout the scriptures of what it is, of who it's for, and of what context it was supposed to be used in. And so just to to recap here, there's more that I could say. I mean, I haven't even touched on things like procreation, Um, but, but let me just stop there for time's sake. When it comes to the, the Christian narrative of sex and sexuality, uh, we, we see that it's good, that it's a gift, that it's powerful, and that it was designed and intended to be used in the context of a lifelong monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. And so whether you totally agree with that or not, it, it doesn't really matter. The point I'm trying to make is that historically, this is what the church has taught from the scriptures about these things. And so let's move on, though, and look at that third question, and that is this. Which version or which narrative leads 
to human flourishing. You guys okay? It feels nervous in here. Is it just me? Am I making you nervous? You're making me nervous. Everybody relax. We're okay. All right, so let's look at this third question. Now, look, I'm, I'm not going to be able to, uh, I, I realized as I was sort of thinking this message out and as I began um, writing down some notes that I'm not going to be able to cover um, every aspect of our culture's view and, and talk about how it relates to human flourishing. And so just let me give that as a disclaimer because you may feel frustrated like, oh, you, you totally avoided this whole side of it. Well, it wasn't intentional. I just, I realized I would have to focus on a couple areas. And so, um, again, just a, a little disclaimer there. Let me first uh, talk about this idea that our culture has said that sex is just physical. And so when you embrace that, does that lead to human flourishing? Well, I, I, I have to say that I, I don't think that it does. Because I think I, we all know deep down that sex is more than just physical. If sex is just physical, then why, if you are sexually abused, does that stay with you throughout your life? If sex is just, again, if it's just physical, then, then if you're sexually abused and it's just physical, isn't that, what, that's no different than if your sibling pushes you down to the ground or it's not really any different than if someone beats you up physically, right? But again, we all know that, that that's not true. We know that there's been, uh, when sexual abuse takes place, we know that immense damage is done to our emotions and to our souls. And again, that's because sex is not just physical, I think the same can be illustrated in the fact that, that when you talk to people, when, when you talk to them about, tell me about some of your regrets in life, many of them, their regrets revolve around their sexual history. Well, if sex is just physical, then why is there so much regret involved? I mean, I, uh, eating is physical, and I often regret some of the things that I eat. <laughs> I don't know about you. Um, but that regret is very short-lived. By the next day, I've forgotten about it, and uh, again, I'm eating more junk food, and, and it's, I've moved on. And yet, that's not true when it comes to our, our sexual history. That regret often remains for a lifetime. And so, uh, again, I think to claim that it's just physical actually hurts human flourishing. Well, what about something like hookup culture? Well, does that lead to human flourishing? Well, research and professor Donna Friedis has done a, a lot of work in this area, and, and she has even published a book called this, The End of Sex, How Hookup Culture is Leaving a Generation Unhappy, Sexually Unfulfilled, and Confused About Intimacy. That is the longest book title I think I have ever heard, but you get an idea of what she's talking about. Um, in this book, she, she points out that with young people, there is immense pressure on them to participate in hookup culture, and I've already mentioned that. But the thing that's interesting is she, she goes on to, and she traveled all around the country interviewing college kids, and what she found is that even though there's this pressure and many of them do it, they are really unhappy about it. And that if you get them in the right context where they can open up and talk about this, they talk about how miserable living like this is making them. You see, as a result of these meaningless hookups, many of them associate sex and sexuality with ambivalence, boredom, isolation, and loneliness. And so that's why in her book, she, she's essentially arguing that our hookup culture is ruining sex altogether. And that's because for many of these kids, this is all that they know. This is all that they have ever been taught about sex. And so because they're finding this way of living, this hookup culture so unsatisfying, they assume that sex itself is unsatisfying. They assume, wow, this whole thing's been overhyped. It's really not all that great. And I just think it's important for us as parents to realize that. 
Look, if you don't teach your kids about healthy sex and sexuality, then you can better believe the world is going to disciple them in that, in this area. And like Frida's points out, that doesn't go well for them. That actually sets them up for disappointment and failure. And the thing is, is when, it, when it comes to this, I think occasionally pop culture is even honest about this. They're, they actually will admit their own bankruptcy of, of their view. Um, for example, there's this show called New Girl, and uh, I don't really recommend it. Um, I have seen uh, some episodes, but um, this show, I think, really celebrates and, 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 and shows our, our culture's view of sex and sexuality. And so there's a lot of just sexual promiscuity in the show, um, just a lot of sleeping around or whatever. And yet there's this one very interesting scene um, where this, this main character named Coach, um, he, he's about to, I think, start teaching for the first time. And he's at this party with these other fellow teachers, and he's uh, drunk. And uh, so he's talking to this other main character named Jess, who's played by Zoe Deschanel. And, and as they're talking, he's a little bit stumbling around, and, and she's trying to convince him of the importance of teaching, and, and apparently I think he's going to be teaching health class, and here's what Coach says. He says, health is the most important subject on earth. Kids, they're, they're always wanting to have sex with each other, but they don't know that it just feels good for a second, and then you're sad. And I, I just remember seeing, stumbling across that, thinking, wow, I can't believe they admitted that. That here's this show that is so celebrated, our culture's view of this, and yet in a brief moment, while he's drunk, he actually owns up to the fact that it's bankrupt. And so, again, I, I think as we think about this, um, not only is it being ruined, but, but it, it just leads to people feeling so unsatisfied. Yet when you compare that to how the Bible talks about sex, we see that in the context of marriage, sex is deeply satisfying. In fact, the scriptures even encourage you to enjoy it and to feel satisfied by it. Um, Proverbs 5, 18 through 19 says this, May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you be intoxicated with her love. And so there's a celebration. There's an encouragement to, to be satisfied, to enjoy you see, here's the thing. When you have sex, there are chemicals in the brain that get released. Things like oxytocin, vasopressin, both of which are designed to create a powerful bond between the two people. In fact, oxytocin, it's the, the, the chemical that's released when a mom breastfeeds her child. And, and, and the reason for that is it's so that a, a mother will form attachment and bond to her kid. And so when you think about these powerful chemicals being released, it makes a lot of sense in the context of God's design and plan for marriage. Like, you're supposed to be connected and bonded to your spouse, which is why sex is such a beautiful gift from God in order to do that. And yet for an unmarried couple, creating those chemical bonds is destructive. Because if you break up and you're not together anymore, that bond has already happened. You can't reverse it, which is, again, is why sexual sin is so devastating and dangerous. And it's why the scriptures warn against it. You see, you've got to get this in your minds. God is not a killjoy. God gives commands and regulations to us for our joy. And when we violate that, it leads to these devastating consequences. Um, Gary Thomas, in his book, The Sacred Search, which is about dating and marriage, he wrote this. Even apart from the moral aspect, premarital sex is a foolish thing to do for this reason. 
just when you need to be most alert to make the best choice you can possibly make, one that will affect you and your future family for the rest of your life, sex creates a neurochemical fog that will confuse you. You're going to feel like you want to stay with that person even if you mentally understand that it's not particularly a wise match. You're literally launching a neurochemical war against your mental reasoning. And so he's saying, look, I don't even care if you embrace Christianity or not. This is a stupid idea to begin with when you are uh, going into marriage. And so, again, when it comes to sex outside of marriage and hookup culture, I, I, I would argue and I, I would think that it seems pretty clear that the Scripture's view rather than the culture's view leads to human flourishing. Um, what about something like pornography? Well, let's see here. It's, it's been shown through various studies and research to... Um, to create sexual functioning problems. Um, in other words, I don't, I don't want to be graphic here, but in males it causes things to not work right, if you know what I mean. Nice. All right. <laughs> I was, uh, okay. Um, do you guys know what I'm talking about, things not working right? Do I, I don't, I don't want to go, okay, all right, all right, good. We're good. We're good. Um, as well, it's been shown to be um, highly addictive. And that's because when, when you watch pornography, the, the, the brain chemical dopamine is released. It's that, that feel-good uh, uh, chemical. Um, not only that, but it's been uh, connected to infidelity in marriage. It's been shown to, to impact divorce rates. In fact, one stat that I came across said that, that married men who look at porn are two times as likely to get a divorce, and women who look at it are three times as likely to get a divorce. As well, there's been some connections between porn and the increase of violence towards women. Um, it has even been connected to the increase of rape on college campuses. In fact, according to one study that I, I came across, a federal study, it said that, that it, from 2001 to 2014, there has been a 205% increase in reported rapes on campuses. That is staggering, 205% increase. And again, the, 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 what they're pointing to is the fact that, uh, again, porn is so widespread and, and it's being consumed so much. And actually, whether you choose to believe this or not, pornography is, is there's a strong connection between pornography and sex trafficking. And so ironically, it's been pointed out that this current generation has done more than any previous generation to fight sex slavery and sex trafficking, and yet they also consume more porn than any other generation before them, which increases the demand for sex trafficking. And so there's something wrong here, and we have to wake up to this. These things are connected. Um, in fact, a senior advisor for sex trafficking um, uh, in persons has said this, we will never have sec, uh, success eradicating sex trafficking unless and until we tackle the cultural messages of pornography and related materials. And so again, she's just saying, look, we are not going to get rid of sex trafficking if we don't address the, the, the problem that pornography brings to it. And so um, again, there's the bottom line here is this, that our culture's view of pornography absolutely does not lead to human flourishing. And the thing that's crazy about it is that it's not just Christians who are saying this. And so if all of this is true, again, I, I realize I wasn't able to cover everything, but if all of this is true, let's go to that last question, and that is this. As believers, as followers of Jesus, how should we respond? 
Well, I think the first way that we need to respond is to take a hard look at ourselves and to confess and admit our own sexual brokenness and sin. You see, my guess is, is that there's probably some of us in here in this room who, who are ourselves entrapped and enslaved when it comes to pornography. Again, there's so many stats on this, and if they're even remotely true, then, then what that means is that there's some people in here who are really struggling in this area. Or perhaps it means for some of us uh, in here who, who are, are struggling and we're having sex outside of marriage. We believe the Bible, we believe what God says, and yet we're struggling to live out what we believe. Well, if that's you, I've got some good news for you today, and that, that, that is this. Like the story from the Samaritan woman in John 4, which if you don't know that, you can, you can look at it later. But in that story, um, Jesus interacts with this woman who has a sexual history, sexual brokenness, and like her, Jesus, he knows your sexual brokenness, he knows your sexual history, he knows your present struggles, and he loves you anyway. And right now, I think he just wants to extend to you some grace. He wants to extend to you mercy and forgiveness and freedom. And so maybe if you find yourself in that place this morning, right now, I, I would just urge you to take a moment, just quietly to yourself, confess and repent of your sexual brokenness and sin, and then receive God's grace and forgiveness and freedom and move forward. And so that's one way that perhaps we could respond this morning. A, a second way that we can respond, though, uh, is through showing kindness and compassion to those who think and believe differently than us when it comes to this area of sex and sexuality. So show kindness and compassion to those who, who we think differently then. Um, in my normal Bible reading this week, I was in 2 Timothy, and, and I stumbled across a very interesting section in chapter 2 where, where Paul is, he's talking to Timothy. Again, it's at the end of his life, at the end of Paul's life, and he's, and he's telling him um, some advice on how to deal with people who believe differently than, than Timothy. And here's what he says in verse 22 of 2 Timothy chapter 2. He says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all of those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so Paul tells Timothy here, first of all, be kind to everyone. He tells him to, to patiently endure evil. And he says that when you correct those who oppose you, uh, who have a different uh, uh, worldview or a different mindset than you, make sure you do it with gentleness. You see, because here's the reality, the goal for us as believers is to not win an argument, but it's to win people to Jesus. And I just think we have, a, as believers, we have a long way to go in this. We haven't always been known for our love and compassion towards those who are sexually broken. In fact, sometimes it's been the opposite, and yet when we look at the life of Jesus, when we read passages like this, we see that God is calling us to be the kind of people who are kind and compassionate to those who believe and think differently than us. And so that's a second response in all of this. The, the last response I'll mention is simply this. When it comes to this area, I think as Christians, we need to hang on to the scriptures. 
and we need to brace ourselves for persecution. You see, later on, just one chapter later in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, Paul goes on and says this, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim and life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, the things that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and, be, and being deceived. But as for you, continue on in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." For all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so again, I just I think our last response here this morning is this, that as Christians, we have to hang on to the Bible standards and commands in regard to sex and sexuality. And we have to realize that there's going to be more and more pressure on us to cave into the world standards. And yet, brothers and sisters, we have to hang on to what the scriptures actually teach, even when our views become unpopular. And they are unpopular, and because of that, we have to be ready to suffer for them. Again, Paul doesn't beat around the bush in this passage. He says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so perhaps for us as followers of Jesus in America, our time has come. But we can't forget that even in exile, even when things are hard, even when persecutions come, God is on his throne. God is in control. Nothing can separate us from his love. And ultimately, one day, his kingdom will fully come. His will will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. So we just hang on in hope. We just keep marching forward. We keep being faithful. That's why one of my favorite verses, and I'll close with this, is John 16, 33. I stumbled, I stumbled upon this verse when I was a new believer, and it, it just it changed my life. It's a life verse. Jesus in John 16, 33 says this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Father, we, <clears throat> we realize what a complicated issue this is in our world and in our lives. Lord, not only are we uh, living in a world that just has such a contrary view to, uh, to the Christian narrative on this, but, but Lord, we live in a world where, where we ourselves, as followers of Jesus, are broken and are struggling. God, again, there's, there's probably many of us in here who uh, even currently are just wrestling and struggling with this area of our lives, Lord. And, and, and God, we just, we look to you. Father, thank you for the freedom that you have purchased for us. Lord, thank you that, that there really is grace. Thank you that there really is forgiveness, that, that you really have for, if, if we are followers of you, you have separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. So, God, I just pray for my friends here this morning, Lord, if, if there's anyone struggling, 
God, would you just remind them of the truth of the gospel, that, that it's Jesus' performance, not their own, that, that makes them right with you. God, would you just so flood their hearts with, with thankfulness and gratitude for the cross that, that they really do begin to find freedom. And Lord, for all of us, I just pray you help us in the, the weeks and years and, and, and decades ahead, Lord, you can help us to be faithful. Lord Jesus, help us to hang on to your scriptures. Help us to hang on to what you say about this area of our lives. Give us the courage. Give us the courage to be, um, to be who you've called us to be. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.